0: Well, I wonder how many of our lives have been shaped or changed by a road trip. I remember one of my first big road trips. I was a freshman in college just outside Chicago, and a high school buddy of mine was ski bumming out west for the winter. So when spring break rolled around, I put a sign up in the student center looking for a ride to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. To my surprise, I found a Jeep full of guys who were headed that way and happy to have one more guy split the gas with them. This was a pretty big deal for me. The first trip on my own, my parents were not happy that I wasn't coming home for the break, and I didn't know these guys at all. Now, it turned out they were a bunch of big men on campus who had graduated the year before. They were handsome, athletic, funny, popular. I was a shy, timid, lowly freshman. (laughs) So I felt cooler just being in the back seat with them squished there for 23 hours on our way out west. Now one of the guys happened to be working for an organization called Campus Life that reached out to unchurched high school kids with the good news of Christ. Well long story short, that trip turned out to be a great adventure in all kinds of ways. It was my first time out west, first time skiing deep powder, first time putting chains on a car in a blizzard. First time being bounced out of a bar. (laughs) Now, don't worry, it's not as bad as it sounds, but it really makes for a good story. that I'll tell you some other time. (laughs) On the long drive home at the end of that trip, sitting in the back seat, that campus life director turned to me and he said, and I quote, you seem like a pretty cool guy. I think you'd be great working with kids. Want to join my team? Who, me? You want me? And something came alive in me on that trip, a lot of things actually, a-, a growing sense of self-confidence, a taste for adventure, and a vision for my life's work. I spent the next three years working with that organization called Campus Life, and it shaped my life in all kinds of ways. It, it gave me a heart for reaching people who are far from God in church. It introduced me to a group of guys, some of whom are still my best friends in the world today, and I met this wonderful girl who became my wife and has shaped my life in all kinds of ways. That trip changed my life, and I wonder how many of us might say a similar thing about a trip we took. Maybe right now you're thinking of a drive you made across the state or across the country, maybe to go to school or take a new job chase down some guy or girl, escape a bad situation, or maybe just to see the country. But there's something about traveling, about the changing landscape, about the random encounters, the rambling conversations we have along the way, something about traveling that opens us up to new ways of being and living. For the past couple of months here at Grace, we had been on a road trip with Jesus and his disciples as they journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem for what would be the final week of his earthly life. Now the road they were traveling would take them through the streets of Jerusalem, to Herod's palace, to Pilate's courtroom, to a hill called Golgotha, to a garden tomb, and eventually to an upper room where the disciples huddled in fear and confusion. That road actually led out the city to a place called Emmaus, where later that afternoon, two disciples had a surprising encounter with a mysterious stranger. It was a trip that would change their lives and has the potential to change our lives as well. So let's catch up with these disciples one more time on the road And see what we might have to learn about following after Jesus. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And we're going to simply walk our way through this story, making some observations along the way, as you do when you're on a trip, and then we'll try to bring it together at the end. Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So this event takes place on what we call Easter Sunday, but not in the morning. This is later in the afternoon, really almost towards evening it seems. These two disciples are making their way to a place called Emmaus. Now the strange thing is no one really knows where Emmaus was, and there's no Emmaus anywhere on the map today, so it's a bit of a mystery but we're told that it was about a two- or three-hour walk, about a seven-mile journey. We're told there are two disciples. One of them, we're going to find out, is named Cleopas, but we don't know anything else about him from the Bible. The other disciple isn't even named. Now, we typically assume it's probably another man, but it could just as easily have been a woman and most likely would have been his wife as they made their way home to Emmaus at the end of the day. Well, it turns out they had a lot to talk about as they made this trip. Everything that had happened, Luke tells us. The triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the betrayal and arrest, the the trial, the, the crucifixion, and now the missing body of Jesus. Have you ever taken a walk with someone to try to sort things out? Maybe to debrief an eventful weekend? or to settle a dispute between the two of you, or just to try to make sense out of what's happening in your life. There's something about walking and talking, about moving and thinking that's very clarifying, that helps us see things we perhaps had not seen before. And that's what these two are doing as they make their way along. And the language here suggests that it was an animated conversation, lively, intense, an argument perhaps. So maybe it was husband and wife after all. (laughs) Luke says, As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? And so suddenly, this stranger literally catches up with them on the road, falls in step beside them, and begins a conversation. Now, they don't recognize him at first, and we've seen this happen in the Gospels after the resurrection. Remember, Jesus isn't just resuscitated, he's resurrected, he's risen, his body, his being is glorified. So he's the same, but he's different, he's better, actually he's perfect, which is good news for us because it suggests that someday we too will get an extreme makeover and become the person we were meant to be, the person we want to be in every part of us. So, what are you discussing, he asks innocently. You have to wonder how he kept a straight face. Now this whole scene makes me wonder if sometimes the risen Lord doesn't do the same thing with us today. Remember, he's risen so he can do that. Just because we can't see him. Just because we don't recognize him doesn't mean he doesn't come alongside us in life sometimes. Suppose the risen Lord were to catch up with you today on your journey through life and say to you, so, what are you thinking about as you make your way along? How would you answer? What are you struggling with these days? What are you hoping for down the road? How would you answer? That's what happens in this story. Luke describes it very vividly. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. Has someone ever said something to you so surprising, so stunning that you literally stopped in your tracks? Looked them in the eye and said, how can you ask me such a thing? That's what they're doing here. How can you ask us this question after all that's happened in Nazareth, in Jerusalem? This is like someone today saying, why is there so much security at the airport all of a sudden? Well, have you not been paying attention for the past week? How can you ask us these things? They're not only surprised, again, the language implies they're a little bit annoyed. Don't you understand what we're going through? How can you ask us what things? But undaunted, Jesus presses on. What things, he asks. That's Jesus' version of therapist talk for, tell me more about that. (laughs) He's inviting them, he invites us to tell him what's really going on inside. Tell me more. So they do. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So they recount the whole story, probably in more words than we have recorded here. Everything they've seen and experienced, not just the past week, but probably the past couple of years. All the the teaching, all the miracles, the crowds, the, the popularity, the opposition, the promise of arriving in Jerusalem. And then, how it all had come crashing down. The Sunday before, they were heroes. It was the best day of their lives as they drove into Jerusalem with their master. Five days later, Jesus was dead, having been humiliated, tortured, and brutally executed. We had hoped that he was the one, they said. One commentator suggests that these may be the saddest words in the New Testament. We had hoped. They may be the saddest words in any language. We had hoped the cancer would be gone for good. I had hoped that I'd have met someone by now. We had hoped to be in a better situation financially at this point in life. We had hoped to enjoy our retirement years together. We had hoped. How do you deal with that kind of disappointment? That kind of grief? The disciples, they're in shock. They are reeling from what has happened. And what is more, they said, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our own women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Well, now their grief is compounded by confusion and a lack of closure. Where's his body? What's going on? They're so disoriented that they can't even see and think clearly. It never occurs to them that God might be up to something here. They don't even remember how many times he predicted that he would die and rise again. Before we're too hard on them, we should remember this is what grief does to us. It knocks us for a loop, a sudden loss. It, it, turn of events that we never expected. And no, we're not always thinking clearly. Even as believers, having experienced so much with God over the years, having known all the truths of Scripture, even we still sometimes lose sight of what God might be doing, what what He can do. So at this point, Jesus Himself begins to lose a little patience, if I can use that expression. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. All the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, why didn't he just tell them? Why didn't he just say, Ta-da! It's me! And the whole thing. Could have been, he would have made their day. And why doesn't He do that with us when we're struggling, when we're seeking? Why doesn't He just make it clear? Why doesn't He just give us the answer? Sometimes we're not ready for the answer. Sometimes we need more time for our eyes to adjust to the dawning light. Sometimes we need the journey because we need to get there on our own, in our own experiences. And so he allows us to do that, but he comes alongside and he whispers into our experience words of life and hope and truth. And that's what he does here. He takes them on a journey through the scripture, showing them that all those Old Testament scriptures were about him, well, were about the Messiah after all. Now, wouldn't you have loved to hear that sermon? And he had more than 30 minutes to deliver it (laughs) as he took them through. The whole story. It might have gone like this. Remember Moses? And, and how the when he was leading the people out of Egypt and how they put blood on the door frames of their homes, so the angel of death passed over them? That was me, he might have said, I'm the Passover Lamb. And remember David talking to his heavenly father? And saying how his father would not let his Holy One see decay, that was me David was talking about. I'm the son of David. And remember Isaiah describing one who would be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities? That's me. I'm the suffering servant. Remember Ezekiel? talking about how the people of Israel were lost like sheep without a shepherd? That's me. I'm the good shepherd. Remember Jeremiah talking about the king coming to his city, gentle and riding on a donkey? That's me. Piece by piece, he took them through the scripture, putting the puzzle together for them. And little by little, they began to get it. Remember now, they've been reading and studying these scriptures their whole lives, but suddenly it's coming alive to them like never before. Their eyes are adjusting to the light. They're beginning to see light at the end of this darkness. And so as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now this is interesting. They come to the exit ramp for Emmaus, and Jesus acts like he's going to go on ahead. Now what's he doing? Is he messing with them? Yes, he is. (laughs) He's giving them the opportunity, the option of continuing this conversation. And we've seen this again and again in the Gospels. Jesus never forces himself on anyone. He meets people along the road of life. He speaks to them. He touches their life in some particular way. And then he lets them decide. Do they want to stay? Do they want to hear more? Do they want to follow? If not, he continues on his way. And he does that with us as well. Coming alongside, speaking into our lives, touching us. But then we get the next move. Do we ask him to stay, to show us more, or do we let him go? Well, they decide to ask him to stay. In fact, they strongly urge him to stay. And then a remarkable thing happens. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Now who knows what it was? Maybe it was the way he broke the bread and handed it out, reminding them of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 that they'd seen before. Or maybe it was the way he prayed, so comfortably talking to his heavenly father. Or maybe it was the way he looked at them. And they remember the first time his eyes met theirs and they felt something stir inside of them. Whatever it was, their eyes were opened. And what I love about this moment is how ordinary it is. This is Easter afternoon, not Easter morning. There's no, there's no burst of light, there's no blown open st- uh, st- tomb, there, there's no angelic messengers, there's nothing big at all. There's just a couple of nobodies on their way to nowhere having a sandwich and suddenly their eyes are opened and they get it, it's Jesus and he's alive again. Now, sometimes pictures capture moments like this better than words, so let's look at a few. This one is by the artist Caravaggio, and it captures what I believe is the wonder of this moment. Now, he sets the scene in his historical context, so there's medieval furnishings here and Anglo faces. But look at the two disciples one is flinging his arms wide in amazement, the other is gripping the arms of the chair as if he's going to jump out of it or as one commentator put it, as if he's holding on for dear life or how about this one a contemporary African artist has captured what I believe is the simplicity, the ordinariness of this scene he sets it in, a, in his home village of Cameroon And it reminds us what an ordinary, everyday moment this was. It was the end of the day, it was a few people having dinner, there were neighbors next door doing the same thing, oblivious to the change that was coming into the world at that moment. And then this one, by the Spanish master Velazquez. It's a little hard to see, but in the upper left corner, you can see into the back room, where the three of them are sitting around the table, breaking bread but the artist calls our attention front and center to a servant girl of a lower class, of another race and interestingly, she recognizes what's happening even before they do the room is being shaken objects are slipping from her grasp and beginning to tumble off of the table reality itself is rippling with the shock wave of what's about to happen, resurrection, Jesus is alive and the world will never be the same again that's the moment, but no sooner do they recognize him, they throw their arms wide, they leap out of the chair and he's God, disappeared from their sight just like that now once again, what's going on here? I heard Pastor Jim teaching on this little story back on our soul care day a few weeks ago, and he pointed out that this is so much like spiritual experiences. They're so fleeting. I mean, there are moments when you sense that God is present, that he's with you. You feel his comfort or strength or direction. You sense him speaking into your life, and you know it's true, it's real. But then just as quickly that moment fades and it seems like he's gone and everything's back to normal and you're left there with a half-eaten sandwich saying, wait, what just happened? Was it real? Yes, it was real. Yes, it was true. The risen Lord came alongside you and spoke into your life and things will never be the same again. And so it was for the disciples. Suddenly they find themselves sitting at that table, an empty seat, dust drifting in the rays of the setting sun. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Remember how we felt on the road, they said. Remember how our hearts pounded in our chest. Remember how our nerve endings tingled. Remember how alive we felt in that moment. It was him. He's alive again. And so are we. So are we. In fact, they were so alive, the scripture tells us, that immediately they got up from the table and hurried, that is, ran all the way back to Jerusalem, the seven miles. Had to be the fastest 10K in history. (laughs) Bursting into that upper room. It's true. We've seen him. He's alive. And the great adventure was just beginning for all of them and for the world. So I've walked us through this story today because I believe in truth it is all of our stories. Each of us making our way through life. Good and bad things happening that shape us. Moments in which the risen Lord comes alongside and speaks into our lives. And when he does, we have opportunities to respond to us, to him. Remember that time when you were a kid and you went to Sunday school or a vacation Bible school at that church down the road and you had so much fun singing those songs and and hearing Bible stories and just talking all about this forever friend named Jesus? Remember how safe and loved and happy you felt? That was Him. That was the Lord coming alongside you, promising to be with you forever. Remember that service project you did, running, helping that soup kitchen in a tough neighborhood, or maybe that vacation Bible school you ran on some mission trip in some faraway part of the world. Remember how good it felt to be doing something for someone else out of your comfort zone, making a difference in someone's life? That was him. That was the Lord telling you he made you for a purpose. Remember that night you came home from the party feeling just awful about what had happened there and maybe some of the things you had done? Remember how empty and dead you felt on the inside? That was him telling you you're made for better things than that. Remember that evening you sat by the lake watching the sunset and the kids play and friends laughing and talking around the campfire and you felt all the gladness of being alive. That was him saying I made all this for your pleasure that you and I might enjoy it together forever. And remember that Easter Sunday, you sat in church like you always do on Easter, but suddenly you sensed something. A song got your heart pounding. Something the preacher said seemed to be speaking right to you. And you suddenly sensed God's presence. That's Him. Breathing life into you, whispering words of hope and life. What will you do with those moments? What I love about this story is the way it brings together head and heart because there's an intellectual side to faith. There are facts to be considered. There are evidence to be evaluated. There are arguments to be understood. This has to make sense to us rationally, reasonably. But there's also an experiential, personal element to this. Personal encounters with a living God, transcendent moments, glimpses of glory, where we see for a moment who we are, who the world is, who we're meant to be. Those moments are the Lord himself coming alongside, and when those moments come, you have a choice. We have a choice. We can lean into them and take hold of them and say, Lord, come closer, show me more. Or... We can let him continue down the road without us and go back to life the way we've been living it, the way it was before. This could be that kind of moment for you today. What will you do with it? As you think about that, and to help you think about that, I'd like you to hear one person's story, a story of making a journey through life, having things happen and God comes alongside would you welcome Hillary as she comes to share a little bit of her story with us?
1: I grew up in a loving Christian family, and we were very active at church. I believed in God as a child, but that could have been because I trusted my parents, and I believed what I was told to believe. Like many people, I went off to college and out into the world and started to have questions and doubt. I spent the next 15-plus years feeling alone, looking for church as a means to roots and community rather than for faith and relationship with God. I felt uncomfortable and guilty around people I considered to be real Christians. Anyone who talked openly about God made me feel that my shortcomings and lack of faith in anything were rudely on display. On the other hand, I cried every Christmas Eve for all those years. Something was moving me, but I guess I only let it in on that one night. I have spent much of my life looking at people whom I believe to be true Christians and wanting what they had. I knew that the reason they were happy, content, joyful, confident was because they had something that I didn't have, and I also knew deep down that that missing piece was God. I asked a friend two years ago why she was so happy and why I was so not. Her answer was one word, Jesus. Part of me thought that she was nuts. (laughs) Part of me was positive that she was right. After years of being stuck in that place, my journey took a turn the day I walked into Grace Chapel. I had been searching for years for the right church in cities all across the country. During the service, I just knew that I had finally found my place. Looking back, I know that God had pointed me to grace. He knew it was my place, too. Things were not the same for me after that. I went on the website and looked up books to read because I wanted to know more. God was knocking harder and harder at the door of my heart. I started reading The Case for Faith, and it really drew me in. I know now that God was right there helping me understand the words, helping them to sink in in a way no other self-help or spiritual book ever had. Then we went through two family crises in three weeks, a tragic death and then a cousin's serious illness. I made the decision at 4.30 in the afternoon to drive down to Virginia and arrived the next day. Looking back, I now know that God was whispering in my ear to go and be with my family. I spent the week with my family and my cousin's very loving friends at the hospital and subsequently at houses and restaurants after he passed away. I drove back up in a terribly exhausting 14-hour trip that sent me into several panic attacks along the way. When I look back on that return trip, I know that God was holding me in his arms all that way. When I arrived home after that tiring, stressful, sad, and touching trip, I said to my husband, I think that experience is going to change me in some profound way. I started and finished The Case for Christ that next week. With every completed chapter, I was getting closer and closer to God, just like the author. At the end of the book, he tells how he asked Christ into his heart after completing the process of writing the book. I thought, oh, I did that too. I just hadn't realized it. By the time I started Alpha, six days after returning home, I was in. A woman at my table asked me, are you a Christian? And for the first time since I was a kid, I answered confidently, and with some internal surprise followed by joy, yes, I am. Everything just fell into place. I believed. My soul changed. I wasn't alone anymore. I never would be again. I had accepted Jesus into my heart. I have more peace, contentment, joy, and less anxiety, anger, and loneliness than ever before in my life. I am still me, but I am definitely changing into a better version of myself, the version that my creator intended me to be. I thank God every day for giving me life through his son, for my mom and others who prayed that I would find Jesus, and for the wonderful people of grace who offer daily to walk with me in my new life. Thank you.
0: Well, when I heard Hillary's story, I couldn't miss the parallels to the Emmaus Road story. A journey through life, good and bad things happening, a sense of God's presence, an unsettling road trip, and yet the sense that God was with her, investigating the scriptures and Christian teaching, and then a simple aha moment around a table with friends when it all became clear. That's how the journey goes for many of us, and many of you can probably find yourself in her story and the one we've been looking at today. If you should find yourself on the seeking side of that story, still having questions about faith, about God, about Jesus, about whether it's all true, then I encourage you, don't let this moment pass. Join us for one of our Alpha courses. They're going to begin this week in Lexington here and Watertown and Wilmington. They're the same kinds of environments we've read about here. A group of people having lively conversation around a table over a meal, and lots of eyes have been opened around those tables. So take advantage of that. Now maybe you've already had your aha moment, or two or three, and you're walking with the Lord on the road of life, but for some reason, like these disciples, you suddenly are stopped dead in your tracks. Disappointment, confusion, grief, disorientation, doubt have caught up with you and you're stuck on the road of life. Next Sunday we're beginning a new teaching series called Stalled. And we'll be looking at why we sometimes get stuck on our journeys and how with Christ's help we can get moving again. So we'd welcome you to come back next Sunday. Something stirred in my heart in the backseat of that Jeep on the way home from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It was the Lord calling me to a life that was fuller and richer than I ever possibly imagined. And something might be stirring in your heart today as well. It's the Lord. Don't ignore it. Because the good news of Easter is that Jesus is fully and forever alive. And we can be too. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for making this journey with us, the one we have made here this morning and the one each of us is making through this world. Thank you for being a risen Lord who can, in fact, come alongside us. Lord, I pray that you would meet each person listening here today, that we would sense your presence, that we would hear what you're saying to us, that we would have the faith and the courage and the resolve to follow through to invite you closer, to say, tell me more. That we might follow you into new, better, and eternal life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.